One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, I'm Gary Bloom. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch. I'm a psychotherapist, counsellor and broadcaster, and that means I work one-to-one with all sorts of people who are having or have experienced problems in their day-to-day lives. It's sometimes called a talking therapy. It doesn't mean the individual is ill, but the sessions give people the opportunity to talk about the things that are really affecting them and gives them a chance to get things off their chest. I treat people suffering from anxiety, depression, addictive behaviours and relationship issues. All of us will know of someone going through a tough time and hopefully this series will encourage anyone who feels like they need to, to get help. There are some useful links on the TalkSport website and we'll give these out at the end of the show. I'm undertaking the project to help widen the understanding of mental well-being in sport and hopefully this programme will give a greater understanding of what goes on between therapist and the sports person who today is on the sporting couch. Meet Ewan Thomas, who for three years was one of the fastest 400-metre sprinters this country has ever produced. He burst onto the athletic scene in the mid-1990s, winning silver in the 4x400-metres relay at the Olympic Games in Atlanta, and then a string of gold medals at the World Championships in Athens, European Championships in Budapest, and Commonwealth Games in Kuala Lumpur, to mention a few. But a series of injuries took away his athletic prowess, and as soon as the success had arrived, it faded, leaving Ewan to deal with the end of his career in his late 20s. This was a difficult time for Ewan, and he suffered from depression, but he came to terms with his injuries and has now forged a new career as a TV presenter. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and former Olympic athlete Ewan Thomas, who said to me that he bitterly regretted never having had one last great success at the end of his career. You said something to me the other day which I really identified with, and you said it's really hard sometimes when you're up for TV work and auditioning and all that sort of stuff when you're rejected. And I thought, yeah, I know exactly what that feels like. Does it get any easier? I think um, it's weird because as an athlete, the stopwatch never lied. So if you run fast, the selectors, if they like you or not, they've got to pick you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's black and white. You've either won a race or you haven't. You've done enough to qualify for championships. But I think since I've retired, going into sort of media and television work, it's purely subjective. So you might think the last job you did, you were amazing. You really nailed it. You know, you did it well. And then the phone might not ring for a while. So I think it's kind of quite an insecure sort of um, career to go into. 
in terms of there's a lot of waiting around. When things are great, they're brilliant, but then there are a lot of downtime when you when you don't have work. And I think that's a period of time when you've you're fighting your demons a little bit. You know, you've got to just stick in there, and you know you're going to turn the corner. Tell me about the demons. Well, I say demons. That sounds a bit strong, but I, I've got my demons. Yeah, well. I think I'm one of those people who, don't get me wrong, I love a day off and I love nothing more than, say, maybe two or three days watching films on the sofa, but then that soon gets boring and then I soon think, crikey, why am I not working? What What's the next thing coming in? And I think you just you just become a little bit insecure, really. It's not a normal nine-to-five job where you know you're gonna where you're going to be. Mm. Not that I'd really think I'd enjoy that so much because I quite like the thrill of, you know, different work coming in and every day being different. But I do think it can be an industry where, as I said, you're left thinking quite a lot why you didn't get that particular gig when you think you would have been great for it. But then on the flip side, there's other jobs that come in and I think, wow, didn't expect I'd get that and really happy to to be involved with that. So it's a weird industry. The word I'm going to pick out of the last answer is thrill. What does a thrill mean to you and how important has that been in your career? It's been everything in my career. A thrill is an excitement, it's a buzz, it's it's a... a natural drug going through your veins when you just it's it's a high so that would be winning a race that would be finishing a training session full of lactic acid really hurting but knowing you've run really fast times since retirement that might be riding a motorbike faster than you should do or you know something that scares you i spoke to a mate actually on the way here and he invited me to come and do um a parachute jump with the, i think he said the red devil some proper hard sas lot and i was like i'm scared of heights and a few years ago, I was actually in South Africa for a long weekend, and, and I thought, right, I need to face my fears. And two things I'm really scared of are big sharks and, and heights. So I um, I swam with great white sharks, and I jumped out of a plane, because that's my character, you know, in terms of I, I like to push myself. And that was a thrill. It wasn't a thrill I enjoyed, in particular the, the parachute jump, but it was perhaps a way of replacing that buzz of, of being an athlete. When that's taken away from you, I, I found that very hard to deal with for, for many years, that I will no longer get those plaudits where you're walking through Heathrow Airport and some security men are like, oh, watched you last night, beat the Americans, wicked, great race. The, the, the pride you feel to be a British athlete and, and representing your country and doing well, when that's gone, it's, di- it's difficult. And I'm sure many sportsmen and women will feel exactly the same as me. Does anything ever replicate that moment, seconds before a big race, when you're waiting to hear the starter say marks? Does anything ever replicate that again? No, the only thing that comes close would be something like live television, you know, in, in your ear when you're counting down, coming back off off the advert, off the breaks, or or maybe lining up to do Strictly, you're about, you know, just that, 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 that adrenaline, knowing, crikey, it doesn't matter how hard you've trained, how good you think you are, it all comes down to this moment, this is live, if you mess it up, you're an idiot, you know, you're going to look a fool, whereas as an athlete, if you mess it up, you're just going to be angry at yourself that you've trained so hard, and that was one of the things I loved as an athlete, where actually where a race didn't go well and and trust me I lost more races than I won I actually after the initial disappointment quite like the feeling of going training the next day thinking I never want to feel like that again I never want to go off too fast and blow up at the end or I never want to go too slow and leave too much to do in the last 50 metres you know so you kind of learn from your mistakes as an athlete Um, and I kind of liked all the things really that I used to moan about when I was an athlete now it's gone I look back and I miss that you know the the travelling the, the training with the, the mates. The training was so hard for the 400 metres, but I find it hard to replace that pain, that thrill of having pain in my in my body. I still train now, obviously to a, a lot lesser standard, but I used to really enjoy that part of my athletics, the actual the, the, the hurting yourself, if that makes sense in training. 
two things came up for me when I, I hear you say those words. One is the masochism of the pain, and the other one is, are you addicted to the buzz? Yeah. It's an addiction. It must be. Um, let's start yeah. with let's start with the with the the addiction to the buzz, and I can see how the television would replicate that that the the buzz you'd get from racing. What happens when the buzz isn't there? You have to try and replace that buzz somehow. But how do you do? My that? buzzer doesn't buzz as loud anymore. You know, there's not there's nothing. There's nothing that has replaced that feeling that sport gave me. Um, that's why maybe I try and do things that scare me, like. As I said, ride motorbikes, do track days in my car, jump out of aeroplanes, whatever it might be. Maybe I'm still looking, maybe I'm searching for that replacement, but I don't think it will ever come, unfortunately. But I'm better than I used to be. You know, I'm, I, I accept I'm no longer an athlete, but when I first had to retire because of injuries, for many years I kept looking back at my event, and this is no disrespect to people who run my event now, but I've held the British record 20 years, and for the first at least five years of stopping running, I still thought I could beat them. I still thought, oh, maybe I should try. Maybe I should try. And I, I probably couldn't have done, but in my mind I was thinking if my body can just hold out, hold through those injuries, I think I could still do it. But I couldn't, but in my head I thought I could. And maybe maybe I'm, I'm that Peter Pan character. Maybe I need to grow up and I, and I, I still think I'm really young. But I, I have accepted now, obviously, there's no way at 43 I could compete how I used to. But for many years I did you know, hate my body for giving up on me, you know, having injuries and being forced to retire. I used to just think, why me? Especially with all due respect, athletes who I used to race against had failed drugs tests. And I thought, you know, all I was doing was training my hardest to be the best I could be and my body let me down. Whereas why can people be out there cheating and having a much longer career than me? They had longevity of 10 years, right? Three good years and that was it for me. So I think I felt a lot of anger towards other athletes when, when I retired. I just felt it wasn't fair on me. But then I've grown to accept maybe that was my path. Maybe maybe just being an athlete was a part of my life. Maybe I'll go on to do bigger and better things. And that was just my stepping stone. I'd like to talk about the masochism. Is, okay. it, is it there in other areas of your life? Do you beat yourself up? Do, others, do you allow others to beat you up? Well, obviously people can't see, but I'm covered in tattoos. I've got a lot of tattoos. And I, and I, do, I do think, if I'm honest, perhaps that is a part of, I don't want to say self-harming, but Tattoos really... Do, have you got any tattoos? No, you don't look like a man you would, but <laughs> tattoos hurt. Tattoos very much hurt, and I'll do at least six or seven hours per sitting. And and you know, some people can take painkillers or have numbing cream. I, I, I refuse any of that because I think if I want that ink on my body, I deserve to go through the pain. It's a story. But, you know, perhaps subconsciously there's something in that where, you know, the, the pain of having a tattoo is some form of, I don't know, Not I wouldn't say bars because it's not a nice pain but are you proud of those tattoos yeah i am yeah my parents hate my tattoos and certainly different generations don't like them but i have them where i can hide them you know i have them so if i wear a shirt on television you wouldn't know i had any tattoos i'd never cover my arms with them but you know they're there but you know i don't know i spoke to one of the tattoo guys in the shop the other day and i said do you think it's kind of like a form of self-harm and he said yeah definitely i have people who come in here who who who, who want to hurt themselves. And it sounds really weird. Like, why would you want to do that? Because I don't want to self-harm, but maybe the tattoos for me are a way of not only expressing, my, expressing myself and it's, it's individuality, what, all my tattoos mean something to me, but maybe there is something in there whereby a tattoo is a form of, I don't know, addiction. Give me a little bit of a thumb sketch, very brief, about, about your family of origin. Okay, so mum, dad, brother. My dad uh, was in the forces, um, so he was away a lot, pretty strict with me. Uh, I was a mummy's boy. 
Um, my brother went to boarding school at quite a young age. We both had the option to do that. I didn't want to do that. So I went to the local comprehensive. My dad worked away a lot. So mainly I grew up, I suppose, with my mum from the age of about 12. My brother was also a good athlete. Could have been really good. I went to the English schools for the two and the 400 metres. Um, and then I came along, you know, a couple of years younger than him. Actually ended up going to his boarding school on a, on a weird twist of fate. My parents moved abroad. Um, then I broke his school records, which I don't think went down too well. We've never spoke about it, but um, we're, we're very different. My brother's a great guy. My dad's a brilliant bloke. My dad has been so supportive in terms of all through my university, you know, financially helped me. And then when I finished uni, it was clear I, I, I could do something in athletics. I'd, I'd, I'd got to the Commonwealth Games. I'd run a Welsh record. I ran 45.9, which was getting there. It was still about a second slower than Roger Black and the best, the best in the world. But I knew, with all due respect, I wasn't training at uni. I was going out most of the time. So my parents were like, oh, aren't you doing well, juggling your studies and, and training? And it just got to the point, at the end of my de degree, uh, this was before National Lottery funding, my dad was like, listen, I'll financially help you for a year if you want to move to the South Coast to live near Mike Smith, who was my coach. He was a fantastic coach. Um, you get yourself a part-time job, I'll pay your rent for a year. So if my dad hadn't done that and been kind to support me and let me chase my dream, then I wouldn't have become a professional athlete. This is On the Sporting Couch, a programme about mental health issues in sport. I'm psychotherapist Gary Bloom, and my guest here in the studio is former Olympic sprinter Ewan Thomas. Welcome back. You're listening to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and former Olympic sprinter Ewan Thomas. Are you motivated when somebody says, you can't do that, you? Yeah, definitely. Why? It's what gets me going. Tell me why. Just to prove people wrong. If someone says, I can't do something, I'll do it. And normally, sometimes that'll get me in trouble. It's not always sensible things, but I just think we've all got barriers in life and I don't like people putting them in front of me. I'll put my own barriers in front of me and if someone tells me I can't do something, I'll be very determined to prove they're incorrect and I can do it. So where are your barriers? I don't know. Because you've got to put your own barriers in place to, to look after yourself. Yeah, maybe that's one of my problems. Maybe I put my barriers too high. I don't know, maybe or maybe I'm I'm searching for that barrier. Where is my breaking point? I don't know, but I, I always try and be the best that I can be in anything I do, be it television, presenting, um, running, whatever, whatever I do. I always try and be the best. And is that search for the barrier being detrimental in your personal relationships? Oh, 100%. Definitely. I've been so selfish. I think uh, as a as a sportsman coming from an individual sport, as I said, where you're judged by your performances, you can't hide behind your, the rest of your football team or your rugby team or, you know, if it goes well, it's all on you. If it goes badly, it's all on you. So I think as an athlete, you have to be very focused. All, all sports people do, but I think you've, you've really, you are in the spotlight. And I think for me, I've always put myself first and that's something I've addressed recently. You know, I, I've, I've always had to put myself first because of my career. Um... And I think that has definitely ruined relationships in the past and it's probably not made me the, the easiest person to live with. How would other people describe you? Focused, determined, single-minded. Are you proud of those uh, Are you proud of those descriptions? Yeah, I think so. Um, I've always been this way, though. I, from even a very young age, I did BMX racing from the age of nine. Mm -hmm. And quite soon I did well on that in terms of... they, they built, All it was was they built a BMX track in my parents' village. 
my babysitter one night said, oh, have you heard they're building a BMX track? You should get a bike for Christmas. So I got a second-hand BMX for Christmas. And then I started racing. And that, in that first year, I was, I was number two in the country. I came fourth in the European Championships. And it was quite clear that, for me, I, I'm not saying I wasn't academic, but sport was a way out for me. Or it was a way of... It was a way of showing off and being accepted, if I'm honest. When I, at my school, you know, everybody knew me for sport, and I was quite cheeky at school, but I never once had a detention. You know, and when I say cheeky, I'd be playing practical jokes on teachers, and it was almost like, oh, yeah, he, he's, he's all right. He plays for the county, rugby, football, cross-country. You know, it was almost like they were proud of what I did on the sports field, so I got away with murder in the classroom. <laughs> and I think that's why I like sport, because... It, it gave me a way of showing my mates I was better than them. Not not in a horrible way, but it just... It, I think as a youngster, you just want to show off, don't you? You want to be the fastest kid in the playground. I, I hear you're great at BMX. I hear you're great at rugby. I hear you're great at athletics. There's a whole bunch of stuff. What happens when you're not good at something? Oh, you haven't seen me play tennis. Any any racket <laughs> sports, I'm absolutely useless. And how do you feel about that when you can't do something brilliantly? Like, you're a great television presenter. Everything you seem to turn your hand to, you seem to be able to do well. What happens when you can't do something well? I just pretend I don't like it, so I don't take it up. Like golf, I'm rubbish at golf. But it's only because I don't play enough time doing playing golf. I'd probably be better than I am. No, I think... Um, no, I'm not brilliant at everything. There's no way I am, but I, I like to try and be the best that I can be in whatever I do. And if it's a sport, for example, I know I'm naturally not coordinated out or I'm not very good at, then I won't concentrate on that. I'll concentrate on what, what I do like and what I enjoy because I'm good at it. But can you see you, and you're, you're describing things you're good at in terms of sports. Yeah. I'm wondering about the personal side of your life, the relationships, that you as a son, you as a partner. What happens when you struggle in those situations? I think I could definitely. There's room for improvement as a son. I don't see my parents enough. Um, but I, I know they're proud of me, you know, and, I, and I, I'm not a bad son at all. You know, I think I'm... I'm quite a good son. I think I can be a bit grumpy sometimes when I go home to my mum and dad. It's nice <laughs> for the first couple of days, and then you remember why you don't let, you no longer live at home. Um, but no, I, I, don't, I don't think that if they were sat here now, I, I hope they'd tell you they're extremely proud of me. I, I think I'm a good person. I, you know, I've made mistakes in my life, but I don't away from the sport. I, I, I truly don't think I'm a bad person. I think it's about being good or bad. It's the the standards you set for yourself it strikes me, are incredibly high. And I'm wondering what happens to you when you don't quite reach those magical standards that you set. What happens to you then as an individual? Oh, disappointment. Certainly disappointment. And, I'll, you know, I get, I, de- I get my down days. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's days when I'm disappointed and, I, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm all right off it because I think, oh, it's cool, I can rectify that situation. But then when it's taken out of my hands, definitely there'd be days when... I feel severe disappointment if I'm not very good at something or something hasn't gone my way when I think it should have gone better. Um, you see, what, It's what, the same what, for everyone, I think. Disappointment's hard to take, isn't it? And it's how you bounce back from that. And as an athlete, I think I learned so much more from losing races and from being injured and having to spend seasons on the sideline watching. I learned more from those years, probably mm. now looking back at it, hated at the time than the years when they went really well and I was winning all the races and doing well you're just riding the crest of a wave you don't really learn much I don't think from that it's when you face difficulties and it's the same for any any walk of life it's not just sport I think it's when you come up against barriers you learn more about yourself you strike me as the golden boy of athletics you come into the sport the world juniors you're suddenly at the olympics silver medal in the four by four and then it all comes to a shuddering halt what happened to you psychologically at that moment? Oh, yeah, that was horrendous. So, like, 
1998, the year could not have gone any better. Won the European Championships, Commonwealth Games, World Cup. I, I thought this is it. Come Sydney. I knew Michael Johnson would retire after Sydney. And then 1999, I had a really bad stress fracture. Turned into like a cyst in the bone and I was out for a whole year and I never got back to running those good times. And I think that was the worst bit, accepting that my body could no longer train six days a week and I could only maybe train twice a week on the track. And doesn't matter how naturally talented you think you are, it's a big world out there and unless you're putting the work in there's a lot of talented athletes you're going to be coming up against so that was horrible just because I felt let down by my body regret that I probably didn't listen to my body more when I was fit in terms of I trained through injuries and just think I was invincible which turned into bigger injuries and I had lots of time out so that was really hard those were the darkest years for me when when I got injured and when I realised I would no longer be able to compete at that highest level I didn't know what I was going to do with my life at all that was definitely some bad times. Where were you in your darkest moments then? Um, what, mentally, you mean? Yeah, low. Definitely depressed. Uh, didn't speak to anyone about it. My ex-girlfriend at the time knew because she lived with me, but I would put on a happy face if I had to go into have physio or anything like that. I'd be upbeat and tell everyone I was all right. Um, I found it very hard to tell my parents and my friends how I felt because, for me, it was a sign of weakness to admit I was down and... I know now it's not, and it's good to talk about that. That's why I'm here, to hopefully help others realise it's cool to talk about depression. But I think for me, what was hard is my friends aren't in the spotlight. My friends are just brilliant, regular guys, taxi drivers, people who cut the grass for the council, you know, just nice people who look up to me for what I've achieved in sport and I felt I could never tell them how low I was feeling because in their eyes my life's hunky-dory my life's brilliant I've done well for myself so for me it was almost like I, I felt I couldn't share my misery with others because what did I have to be miserable about although I was hurting inside I thought others would look at me and think but your life's good you but you, but you were miserable because you couldn't run as quick as you could yeah but they wouldn't see it as that, I don't think. Perhaps they would. They they would see it as, you know, you had some some great years. But you, you, know. but you say the taxi driver, he would be miserable if you said, well, you can't drive your cab anymore, or the man cutting the grass, you can't cut the grass anymore. You were in exactly the similar situation. Yeah. They actually, the, the, the two I mentioned there are both athletes. So they, we train together, so they do understand, but they, mm. did, they didn't reach the heights I did. So I think for them, it would I would have felt guilty putting my... My, my my traumas on them, you know. I would have felt guilty to do that. So you've got this fantastic supportive family and you've painted a very good picture of that, Ewan. And yet when the chips are down and you're going through a terribly dark phase of your life, you don't talk to them. And that's the bit I don't understand. I wouldn't want them to worry. I want them to know that I'm doing all right. You'd think they didn't know? Yeah, they know. Obviously, they, they knew I was injured, but they probably didn't know how, how, how low I was feeling. You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell them. You know, I just yeah, my injury's okay. Should be back training in a month or whatever. You know, I I think maybe I'm just maybe that's the selfish side of me, but wanting to protect them, wanting to protect others around me. I didn't want them to have to sort of feel my pain, if that makes sense. I, I, at the time, I felt I was doing the right thing, but and also you're talking about the late '90s, early 2000s, where I don't think people talk so much. You mm -hmm. know, and that's and maybe it's a, maybe it's a bloke thing, maybe. Maybe it's just me trying to be a macho guy and like not want to show my emotions, not want to show my disappointments or my downfalls. So maybe I didn't want to share my troubled times with people because I wanted them to all think I was okay. Would your dad have listened? Of course, yeah, definitely. My dad would listen, my mum would have listened. But it's almost like it's not a subject I wanted to talk to them about. 
I don't I didn't want them to see me in pain. They saw you struggling now, you know, your television career took a dip for six months and you said to them, Mum and Dad, I'm going through a terrible time. What would they say now? They'd say, Good, you need some time off. You work too hard. <laughs> Seriously, they probably would. They're always telling me to slow down a little bit. Why? Because I think life passes you by quite fast and I I I don't sit still. Are they worried? I'm quite about- hyperactive. Um are they worried? Yeah, I think my dad my dad tells me often that I need to slow down a little bit. But I, I, I think I'm a bit of a, maybe it's searching for that buzz, I think I'm a bit of a workaholic. So, you know, like I said, this industry, when it's great, it's great. You don't know what's around the corner. So I often think, not take every job that comes in whatsoever, but I do think if it's there and I, I fancy doing it, do it. I tell you, the impression I have being with you, Ewan, is you're going at a huge speed. You're going at 400 miles an hour and I'm struggling to keep up with you. And I'm wondering if that speed is covering some really difficult feelings. And very many people do this. They, they're busy, 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 and they've got busy jobs in the city and here and there and everywhere, and they create the busyness to stop feeling something that's really, really troubling them. Do you think, does that ring a bell for you? Maybe. I'm, de- I'm definitely happiest when I'm busy. Yeah, I'm definitely happy. Can you feel the speed that I'm talking about? Yeah, but I'm quite hyperactive, so like I normally talk quite fast. Or if I'm on a night out, I'll I'll drink my drinks quicker than my mates. It's not searching. I just think I've not been diagnosed with ADHD, but I'm definitely I've got something. (laughs) Even from my childhood, I was very hyper, and I think I just live like that. I think my brain's quite fast in terms of I'm always not searching, but I'm, I'm I like to be busy. I like to be a bit scatty. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And what happens when it just all slows down and there's nothing and it's just a, a night in front of the TV or pair of your slippers and pyjamas night? Yeah, but that's the weird thing. I also really like that. I, re- I could happily have a whole day at home watching films, sat on the sofa for four hours and I'll feel great. But if that continues for too many days in a row, then I don't like it. So we're back to the catastrophic thinking again, isn't it? It's yeah. going to be 200 miles an hour. 400 miles an hour or absolutely nothing there's no middle ground no you're right this is on the sporting couch a program about mental health issues in sport i'm psychotherapist gary bloom and my guest here in the studio is former olympic sprinter ewan thomas Welcome back. You're listening to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and former Olympic sprinter Ewan Thomas. One of the things you said to me in our conversation the other day was one of my biggest regrets is I never had the final hurrah um, due to injuries. It all just fizzled away. Yeah, that's tough. That was tough. You know, I, I, I have so much ad- admiration and respect for people like, say, Jessica Ennis Hill, who retired under her terms. You know, retired at the top, and it's very hard to do that. Look at Usain Bolt this year; he should have quit last year, hundred percent. His body didn't want that last year, but for whatever reasons, he came to London to the World Champs and finished laid on a track injured. You know, it won't change his legacy; it won't change what he's done. But for me, I, I didn't even have that chance to get on that big stage again. I, I, I desperately wanted to try and finish my career on a high note. I'd been injured. I'd moved. I'd had moved away from Mike, so I moved back to Southampton for the 2006 Commonwealth Games. I was selected to go to Melbourne in Australia and two weeks before I'm due to get on the plane that exact situation whereby I was training my hamstring was a bit tight and I said to Mike I'm going to have to stop now my hamstring's tight and he's going to come on it's your last session before you get on the plane one more rep one more rep tore my hamstring never stepped on a track again and that was bitterly disappointing not to be able to retire 
at a major championships, hopefully, on the top of that rostrum. That was really bad. In fact, I never officially retired. I just sort of walked away from the sport. Fizzled out sounds yeah. sounds really, really painful. That's what happened. I definitely fizzled out in terms of, for me, the hardest thing to accept was I wasn't running 44-3 anymore. I was running 46-3, and that's all my body could handle because I could only train a few days a week. I was getting beaten by people, with all due respect, who I used to beat by 10 metres. I wasn't representing my country anymore, and it, and it and I just kept thinking, one more winter, I can get back, I can get back, and I never did. It was tough. Let's go back to what we were saying before about this, this desire for speed to cover up some difficult feelings. You said to me before this recording began, you're not going to make me cry, are you? Are you frightened of showing your emotions? No, right? I'm not frightened. I'm just in a good mood today, and I don't want to cry. I have to go back on the train with red eyes. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not afraid to show my emotions. No, I um, perhaps in the past I have been trying to portray that big, strong bloke image. I definitely have. But you catch me at home watching a film on my own, I'll be in tears. Uh, you know, I'm I am an emotional person. But I think once again, when you've had to make a career out of being physically and mentally stronger than those around you, it is quite hard for for me anyway to open up. Um, to people but I think I'm better than I used to be I wouldn't be here talking to you now if I wasn't willing to open up I just don't think I want to cry <laughs> not yet <laughs> it's your choice and it's absolutely fine either way um, I suppose my my question would be what would you like to say to the big strong man who put on that, that big act It's not. there's no weakness in showing you're, you're feeling low or you're upset I think I think things are better now for people, but I think in the past it very much has been, maybe it's sexist saying it or it's old-fashioned, but blokes, blokes don't cry. But I, I think, you know, for me, without a doubt, going through those times when I bottled it up, when I was feeling low, it would have been better to talk about it, 100% it would have been better to talk about it. And I, and I think it's brilliant nowadays that people, you know, feel they can, you know, due to charities like Heads Together with Prince Harry and, and, and high-profile people coming out saying they've had depression, they've had hard times. It makes it acceptable to talk about, and it is acceptable. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. We all are going to face down days. I, I've never met anyone who's totally happy all the time, and if they are, they're lucky. I think, you know, we all struggle in life at times, and I think it's good to talk about it, and it's okay to open up. And don't matter if you're six foot four, don't matter how big you are or how strong you think you are it's okay to it's it's not weakness it's okay to open up was that meeting with prince harry the first time that you had really begun to open up to anybody about your personal life yeah it was and it it was very random opening up to a prince while we were being filmed but it was just felt really natural he invited me to a barbecue and i was at the barbecue we're flicking flipping burgers and um and she starts talking to me about you know as an athlete, injuries and how did it affect me? And I just found myself, he's such a nice guy, I just found myself talking to him as I am to you now and saying, yeah, I had some really horrible times and I found it really difficult. And um, I, I think it made me realise, wow, if he can talk about times he's had and he's so under the spotlight with the media, then I, I think it, it really made me feel, why on earth haven't you talked before? And I think if anyone listening to this has a problem, you'll have a friend, you'll have a work colleague, you'll have family, someone to listen to you and, and talk because if you bottle it up it's not going to get any easier you do need to talk about things and I, I think gone are the days where it is a weakness to to show you know I thought it was weak of me to admit I had a, a chink in my armour you know I, I had a something that wasn't strong in my makeup 
and I think it's fine to to talk about that and in, if anything it's good to talk about it and that and that's why definitely by me doing things like this talking to you today if if I can only reach one person out there that turns to their wife to their boyfriend whoever it might be and says I've had a bad day at work I'm really low at the moment then I've done a good job you've done a good job you know it's good it's good to get it out I'm just wondering why why you didn't go see a therapist at the time when it was at its worst I wasn't really aware of that we had sports psychologists or whatever you want to call them but that was more talking about focusing for the race and, and, and to be honest that was one of my strengths was my strength my mental strength as an athlete when things were going well you didn't I didn't have to speak to anyone I just had to listen to a bit of music as I warmed up and I was ready to take on the world I, I was very very confident in my ability when it wasn't going well as I said I didn't really want to accept that I, I was in pain inside but I didn't really feel there was that support network out there I'm sure it was but I wasn't aware of it and that's not being nasty to to British athletics I'm sure if I'd contacted them and told them they would have helped me but I I didn't I didn't think I wanted help I didn't need, I didn't feel I needed help and the worst thing with injuries no one else understands as I said blessing my coach would be like how bad is it and I say well I think I've torn something well you seem all right come on he wasn't an athlete he doesn't know what a strained hamstring feels like or a uh, you know, when you rupture your Achilles or something horrific, no one else can really feel what you feel inside, and then it becomes very personal. I mean, you talk about your your, your coach Mike Smith um, as being brilliant, and there's a bit of me that thinks actually there's a bit of cruelty there. No, I, don't, I wouldn't say cruelty. No, I, it he, might, he, he was old-fashioned. He, no, he was very old-fashioned with his with the training methods, and because he hadn't been an athlete himself, he didn't know what really your body was feeling like. If, if that makes sense, so I don't. You know, a lot of coaches nowadays, it's a lot more scientific. They've been athletes themselves. They know if you've got a tight hamstring, rest. You know, don't finish a session. But for Mike, bless him, he hadn't been an athlete at a high level, so he didn't really understand. I just think he was a brilliant coach a brilliant trainer but perhaps didn't really understand disappointment that well and that he was an old man you know he he wasn't from the modern world but you stick with a coach who is prepared to go with you in punishing yourself can you see what i'm saying it's a good fit in in many respects he was a great coach he was he was a a great coach for you because you wanted to push your body yeah he wanted to push your body to be beyond what it was capable of yeah. and you can see how that fits together he was like a father figure to me he was like a dad to me he was more than a coach he was he was brilliant and um let's, yeah let's his just... training methods definitely suited my mental state if you want or how i wanted to train and i'm going to pick you up on the fact he was a bit like a dad to me because you have said that dad was not around he was a military man yeah and he was not always at, he was not always uh, there for you is that where the vacuum began to be created that Mike came into no because at that stage I'd left home anyway and I'd finished university so I, I only met Mike you know when I was early 20s 21 22 um, but I didn't know many people in Southampton when I lived there he found me a little bed sit to rent you know his wife used to make me dinners you know he was brilliant for me because I was still juggling if I'm honest I was still wanting to be the eternal student I didn't really know if I could make it in athletics I was tempted to go out three nights a week still and go out and be a young lad about town whereas Mike would you know be knocking on my door right come on training tonight you know and he knew exactly how to push my buttons if I looked like I wasn't training hard one day he'd he'd tell me oh I've heard Mark Richardson and Jamie Borsha in great shape oh Roger Black did six twos yesterday averaged 22 one he didn't know that at all but I believed him so it made me run even faster so he knew exactly what what 
switch to flick you know in terms of to get me training hard he knew what to say to me and he was he was brilliant for me so you found somebody who fitted your masochistic model 100 <laughs> percent. yeah have you never realized that until today no i never realized that no. what does it feel like now that i've actually you know Fed the fed the material back to you, and you can begin to understand it. I'm, I'm smiling. Big, I'm smiling because I'm smiling because it all makes total sense now. What you know, why I loved Mike. It makes total sense why he was one of the most important people in my life and always will be because we were a perfect match for each other. I don't want to stop you smiling. Yeah. What did it feel like when he was coming to the end of his life? Horrible. Um, you're not going to make me cry. Um, I went to see him in his care home. Uh, and it, it it was it was I went there with my little dog, my puppy. We went to see him, and the last time I saw him, I was there with his wife, and he hardly acknowledged I was there. And I felt he knew I was there, but I don't think he wanted to me to see him in that way. Um, Which would kind of fit in with the nature of the relationship. Yeah, and I kind of regret that I never gave him a big hug and said thanks, Mike. And I thought it'd be, I didn't think he was coming towards the end. If I'm honest with you. Because the time before I saw him, it was quite sprightly. We were having fun in the, talking to him. And I thought, yeah, the old gear would be at least another two or three years. Because Mike, Mike was old when I met him. Mike looked about 90 when I first met him. He wasn't, but he just never changed. And then when he did get old, uh, older and deteriorated, I, I found it really hard. And I regret not seeing him as much as I could have done. But I know he was proud of me because at his funeral when I spoke, his son had said to me, you do realise my dad was so fond of you. And and he he spoke about you all the time, so you know I don't have regrets with that. My only regret is I didn't give him a massive hug and just say thank you because if it hadn't been for Mike, I wouldn't I wouldn't have what I have in my life. No way I wouldn't have achieved anything. He was an amazing man, and you know I'm gut I'm gutted he's gone, but you know I I only have fond memories of my time with Mike. Were you closer to Mike than your your own father? No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't say that. It was different. It, it, it's very different. No, um, but I saw more more of Mike. You know, I'd see Mike six days a week, sometimes seven days a week at training. Mike was like the granddad I never had, sort of thing. I think more than more than a father. But as I said, Mike, he, he was a, he was a he was a grumpy sod at times as well. Um, it, it wasn't all easy, but uh, as I said, I wouldn't have achieved anything without him, and I, and I wouldn't have changed his ways for anything. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is On the Sporting Couch, a programme about mental health issues in sport. I'm psychotherapist Gary Bloom, and my guest here in the studio is former Olympic sprinter Ewan Thomas. Welcome back. You're listening to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and former Olympic sprinter Ewan Thomas. Because you have what you described as, as difficulties, depressions, um, and so on and so forth. How difficult was that to move into the very public world of TV presenting? I don't take them with me. I try not to take them with me if I'm doing any work. And Yeah, no, I, listen, I, I don't want to sit here and sound like I'm doom and gloom. I'm always down because I'm not. If anything, I'm a little bit the other way. I'm, I'm, I'm either totally crazy happy bouncing off the walls or I'm really down. But normally when I'm really down, I won't show people that side of me. Why? Then because it's when I'm at home on my own and it's when, I'm think- when I've got too much time to think. When I'm busy and, and work and stuff's going well, then I'm normally the, the chippy chappy, you know? And that's exactly the point I'm making to you, that you need the speed, the buzz, to keep those very strong emotions at bay. And I'm trying just to dig down and say... What is it? What is the thing that you're frightened of that the speed covers up those emotions? I don't know. The fear of failure, maybe? Uh, wanting to be accepted? Wanting to be good at what I do? Not in a materialistic way, just... I don't know. I think it's an acceptance, and maybe that's bad. Maybe I need to just be content. Because I have done well in life. You know, I've done all right. I've done well. I've, someone paid me the biggest compliment once when I, I remember I'd done a local run in the park and I was coming back. And this chap stopped me and he goes, you're all right, you are. I see you down here all the time running. You're, you're 1%, 1%. And I went, what's that mean? He goes, well, you think how many people around the world who make it as a professional athlete, it's probably 1% of the, of the nation would do that. And I said, oh, I suppose so. He said, now you think since you've retired, how many athletes do you know that have gone on to forge a second career? It's probably 1%. You know, Denise Lewis, Colin Jackson, Jonathan Edwards, a handful of you. And I went, yeah, I suppose so. And I never really thought about that. So perhaps I should be a bit more proud and content with what I've done. If it all ends tomorrow, I should still be happy with what I've done. But I don't know, I just feel, st- I still feel I've got a journey to go. I still feel I've got more to give. And maybe that is because my career was cut so short. Maybe because I didn't have closure as an athlete. Maybe I'm always striving to for, for excellence or to be good but I don't think that's a bad thing you see obviously I don't think it's bad that I'm ambitious I don't maybe it's bad that I take rejection or disappointment to heart but I don't I don't think it's a bad thing that um I thrive to be the best that I can be in any walk of life whatever people do to be the best in your career you've got to sacrifice and you've got to give it everything you've got unless you're really lucky and you've had a lucky break there's an issue I have with that and it goes like this you can only be the best you can be on any given day. Yeah. Those those standards are going to move 
throughout the day. You know, at 10, 11 o'clock at night, we're not as sharp as we are at 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So it's the best you can possibly be at any given time. Okay. But I think you create, if you don't mind me saying so, unbelievable standards that you're always going to now and again fall short of. So how do I stop that? How do I lower my standards? When I think it's about lowering your standard. It's about accepting that you're not going to be 100%. Oh, no, I do accept that. Don't get me wrong. Like, I do my local park run on a Saturday. It's a 5K. Three years ago, I'd be coming second now and getting beaten by 11-year-old boys. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm no longer the, the machine I once was physically. My body, I'm getting older. I'm getting slower. I know that. So I, I changed my goalposts. I no longer set myself as hard goals. I set realistic goals. But I, I just think it's good to have those goals. But like you said, you can only be your best at a certain time of day and it won't last, it won't last forever, and I know that. But maybe that's my fear. Maybe this career I'm in now I know won't last forever, so I've got to milk it and do as well as I can now so I can be a content old man in my rocking chair watching five DVDs a day. <laughs> so what do you hope you're doing in, in ten years' time? I hope by then, well, quicker than that, but I hope by then I'm married with a child and, and, and I, I think that will change me. You know, all my friends who've got kids, I'm, I'm great around them and I talk to them and I think perhaps that would be a much better focus for me than wanting to strive to be the best in any job I take on. So, you know, I smile saying it. I, I look forward to the day that that happens and I think that will change me dramatically. I think all of a sudden I won't be living for myself in the selfish way I've been. I'll be living to be the best dad that I can be. What sort of dad are you going to be? Amazing. I'll be a great dad because I'm just a kid myself. I treat my dog like it's a human. I take my... I'm surprised I didn't bring him with me today, but <laughs> I take Frank everywhere with me and, and, and I think I hopefully will be a good dad. I, I'll be a, I know I'll be strict and I'll want the best for my child, but I want them... Maybe I'll have to ease back, but I want them to be the best that they can be as well and as long as I can give them that, that chance in life to, to follow their dreams then I think that's what my dad did for me. I'd, I'd be proud to do that. Imagine having a 15-, 16-year-old son. Yep. He's a keen sprinter, yep. and he's pushing his body to unbelievable limits and levels. Yeah. What would you be saying to him? I'd say you won't be as fast as I was, but I'm um, <laughs> listen to your body. No, I, I, I would tell him, well, for a start, if he got into athletics, I'd tell him it's, it, you know, I remember Mike said to me once, we were training, it's a, I'll never forget it. He said, in, in athletics, you've got to work bloody hard to go nowhere at all, and it's a tough sport. And I would tell my son or my daughter that, do whatever sport you want to do, but athletics is tough. But listen to your body. That is my one regret. You know, if things hurt, they hurt for a reason. But you've got to know the difference between a hurt that you can run through because he's being a little lazy sod or a hurt that's going to damage him. And, and, I, and I do think that's a fine balance, but only my son or my daughter could tell me that. But, you know, there's hurt and there's hurt. You know, as an athlete, you, you get lactic acid. Your legs do hurt when you're training. It doesn't mean you're going to get injured. You've got to know the difference. But I think I would tell them to learn from my mistakes you say listen to your body yep what about listen to your mind 100% because you didn't say that did you You said listen to your body well I think it's a given that the mind is the most powerful tool you possess and I think as an athlete unless you are up against a Usain Bolt or Michael Johnson you're pretty much all of the same ability it is that person who believes in himself and has the mind strength but that was my best asset I think was my mind I I was very clear when I lined up what I was going to do and how I'd how I'd execute my race and I, obviously I, you, I, I don't even know if you can teach it if I'm honest I don't know if you can teach you know, what, what separates someone from being a champion or not I, I think it's I think we're I think we're born that way 
So I think you can help someone psychologically as a sportsman or woman to, to psych up for a race and not get too nervous. But I do think to a certain degree that's something natural. I, I, that's my personal opinion. And as a personal question, really, how soon into that 45 seconds of running, roughly, did you know you were going to win? Depends what race it was. Um, in the warm-up track, I knew I was going to win in most of my races. This is not disrespectful to my opponents, but the British Championships, or let's take the European Championships. That year, I'd had a really bad season. 1998, Mark Richardson had beaten me five times out of six around the Grand Prix, Grand Prix circuit. I beat him at the trials to make the team. It was, a, it was a hell of a race. Roger Black didn't even make the team. He ran 44-6, which would have come second, by the way, at the last World Championships, and he came fourth in our British trials. It was tough to make the team back then. And I, I'd got through the heats, the, the second round, the semi-final. I remember saw, seeing Mark in the warm-up track and we'd walk past each other and I remember I just I stared him out and he looked at the ground and I went back to Mike I said I've won he goes what do you mean he's in great shape I said no I've won I said I'm in his head already and that's no disrespect to Mark if he's listening to this by far the best athlete most talented athlete I raced against but I think I had one over on him when it came to the mind and you know I remember you, you, you get on the warm up track then you get in a little bus that takes you to the main stadium and I made sure I got on that bus first and all seven of those finalists had to walk past me and I literally eyeballed them all as they sat down. I just let them know that I was here and I was ready. And I ended up winning by over half a second, which was a huge margin, and Mark came third. And he should have easily been right with me. But I think, psychologically, I'd won the battle before we'd even heard on your marks. And as I said, when things are going well, I, I, I mentally was tough. I wasn't horrible, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't go around swearing at people before you're about to race but I'd, I'd let them know I was ready I'd stare them out I'd, 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 I would not stop looking at them I'd like to discuss in the last part of our, our conversation about people who might be listening to this programme who are going through dark times at the moment especially people who are very interested in sport and of course that's the majority of our audience what message would you give to them not necessarily budding sports people but young men or women who are struggling with psychological issues right now you're not alone you are not alone. You'll feel alone at the moment. If you don't talk about it, you'll feel that. Why you? Why you? And it's weird because you'll think how I thought if you say to someone, oh, I'm feeling really... De- what have you got to be depressed about? That's the answer you think you might get, but you won't. There's so many people out there who, who have tough times. Just reach out. I'll talk to them if they want. Honestly, just just get in touch because, you know, what's the saying? A, a, a problem's half there's a problem shared there's a problem solved I don't know whatever they're saying is just just talk because I, I think there's a there has been a stigma around it before where you think there's something wrong with you if you you get depressed or you know why can't you see the light why why are you always feeling so low but you'll be so surprised the amount of people maybe people who you respect and look up to who feel the same as you they just might not show it so I think just talk to people. It doesn't matter if, you, if it's your mates down the pub, it's, it's a colleague at work. If it's a stranger, there's so many different charities and helplines out there. Just talk to someone because cause it's, it's normal. I think it's normal. Honestly, I think it's normal to feel low. I, I can't see how you can go through life always feeling totally upbeat. And as I said, if you do, then bottle that and sell it because you're lucky if you've got that in your life because I think we'll all come across times 
you know, I, I think the cruelest thing in life is when things are going great and then all of a sudden something happens, whether there's a bereavement or, the, or, or, or you lose a job or you, a relationship breaks down. Just when things feel like they're going great, something comes in life and it kicks you between the legs and you just think, why? But it happens to all of us. So you've just got to get back on that bike and just, and just talk to someone. Interestingly, sport is a great antidote to feeling low, and actually physical exercise is, is one of the best things that anybody can, can prescribe. It's brilliant, and I love nothing more than when I go for a run around the streets of Southampton to see other people running, and it's almost like that about brotherhood when you say hiya, and there's all shapes and sizes. I'm not being disrespectful. Where I run, there's, qu- there's quite a large woman who always runs around, and I'm always thinking, fair play to you, because there's a lot of people who might have weight issues and think, I can't go to the gym, people will laugh at me, or I can't go out and go running. I'm really slow. So what? Just get out there and do something. Set yourself a little target, whether it's walk for five minutes, jog for two minutes, then build it up. And I think sport makes you feel great all the time when I'm feeling low and I'll message a couple of guys I run with just for fun and I'll text them and say, I'm not feeling it today, guys. I can't be bothered. And they knock on my door and say, oh, wait, get your shoes on. And I come back from that run and I'm like, oh, cheers, guys. Thanks for making me get out because I feel great now. And you do. Uh, there's obviously the scientific proof it releases endorphins or whatever it is it makes you feel good but whatever it is it does make you feel good when you do exercise and, and, I, and I think also team sports are brilliant to get out there and have a laugh you know don't, you'd have to be the best football hockey player rugby player if you if you enjoy being with people and you want to keep fit go and find a sport that suits you and I think that is a beauty of sport nowadays all shapes and sizes doesn't matter your ability get out there and find something that you enjoy doing because it's good to get out there in the fresh air and and do something it makes you feel alive i'm going running tonight i've already planned it before i came here i'm doing hill sessions something i do as an athlete it's going to kill me oh there we go back to that being i can't even say that word masochist masochist there's my masochism coming back out but no i'm going training tonight i'm doing 10 10 hills off two minutes recovery and i know after three i'm going to be in pain but i'll be smiling at the end of it you and thomas masochist supreme many thanks for joining me on the sporting couch pleasure i've got to learn how to say that word haven't i <laughs> You've been listening to On The Sporting Couch, a programme that attempted to lift the lid on mental health issues in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, a psychotherapist, counsellor and sports broadcaster, and my guest has been former Olympic sprinter Ewan Thomas. I hope the programme will have encouraged anyone who has or knows anyone who has mental health issues to come forward and get help. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website if you look at talksport.com forward slash sporting couch. I'm Gary Bloom, and please remember... There's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.